If you have your uh, Bibles, let's uh, open them to Jonah, uh, the Old Testament, one of the minor prophets. And uh, as we started this study uh, last week, if you're new uh, to Christianity or you're exploring Christianity, you don't have a Bible, there uh, should be maybe one uh, under the chair there. We'd love to give to you. Uh, You can have that uh, or you can turn them on. You may uh, have an app and you can turn it on and uh, be able to walk through uh, this book. We are grateful that you're here and uh, thankful to to God for uh, a great morning so far. And uh, this is um, what we're going to to be looking at is uh, is the book of Jonah. If it's if you if it's one of the Bibles under the chair, it's on page 775. So again, if you don't have a Bible, if you need one this morning, page 775 uh, on that particular <coughs> Bible. So here, here's what we've, we've got. We want to get some context around this because it's an amazing, amazing book. And in this book, right, it's, it serves sort of as a, as a, a window into the, the heart of God, right? Some of my windows at the house need cleaning. I can't see that clear through them. This book is a clear window into the heart of God and, and his passionate pursuit of a rebellious people, right? Through, through a prideful prophet that's running from God and the people that God has asked him to go and to preach to. And this, this particular book is considered a, a minor prophet only because it's, it's short in length. It's, it's not that it's short in content. It's got great depth to it, but you'll have 12 minor prophets. If, you, if you're, again, new to Bible study, um, it's, it's 12 of them. They're the shorter books, but the messages are amazing, right? There's some minor prophets, such as Isaiah, that will have 66 chapters, right? This only has, has four. We're covering it in about five Five weeks, and so so Jonah uh, is is the, the prophet. What's interesting about this particular uh, book is is that it's not so much uh, about the prophet's words or God's people, which majority of these these prophets and prophetic literature in the Bible is. It's, it's this prophet comes and this incredible word uh, to God's people, uh, but this isn't what it's about. It's it's really more about Jonah and God, and ultimately about the God of Jonah, not necessarily the prophet of, of God. And it's about God's heart for the loss in this, this city and how he orchestrates, right, both his power to save and his, his providence in providing. He's sovereign. We're going to see the sovereignty of God moving and orchestrating. It's fascinating that you think about the, the waves of the storm in this book uh, to possibly a, a large well, to wind, to a worm in chapter four. Everything in the book made by God acts like what it was made for and obeys God, except the very one who was made in the image of God, the prophet of God, Jonah. It's, it's just quite fascinating. And we'll see how, how Jonah runs from his enemies and God runs toward his enemies. And it's fascinating when you think about this, right? Every, every world religion, the God that they create is one that demands you to run toward them while trying to make yourself right on the way, and yet you always fall short. But in Christianity, because we always fall short, God runs toward us while in our sin, and he makes us right by faith in his son's righteousness, namely Jesus. And I'm just grateful this morning, Providence family, I'm, I'm grateful that, that God can outrun me. <laughs> Amen. And he can outrun you as well. And so, so let's think through context, right? 930 BC, 930 BC, You've got this kingdom set up that's established, um, the, the kingdom of, of Israel, and, and the kingdom is divided. And so in 930, 
the north of Jerusalem. So if we just went there in the city north of Jerusalem would be called um, Israel. The southern kingdom would be called Judah. And the capital there of Judah would be Jerusalem. Two or three different capitals up north over a period of time. And then in 793, Jeroboam II ends up ruling for 41 years as an evil king. And you had three prophets reigning during this time. You had uh, Amos, you had Jonah, and you had Hosea uh, during this time. And, and Jonah is a prophet for the northern kingdom. So let's think about this really quick. In God's word, in the Old Testament, you'd have a king who would, would reign as kings do. You'd have a priest who would represent God's uh, people to God. So he would be acting on behalf of them, entering in to offer the sacrifices. And so the priest would bring the people in essence to God. And then you'd have the prophet of God who would bring the word of God to the people, right? These are these three incredible offices in the Old Testament. And what's the beauty of the gospel in King Jesus is that, that he actually functions as all three uh, in, in, in one. And, and so, so we see that un, unpacked and unfold in the, in the New Testament. But here you've got, um, last week we learned, we saw this map from, from last week. There's this, God says, hey, listen, so, so where Joppa is, that's the southern part there, Israel there on, on the coast. And he's saying, listen, I want you to go 550 miles to modern day Iraq, uh, right, to, to this, this wicked city where, where there's no uh, concern for God at all. Um, and so what he does, Jonah, uh, he runs um, from him. He's hidden 2,500 miles toward the southern part of Spain. This is, this is where, where he's trying to run uh, from the presence of God. But again, you, you can run, but you can't hide. And, and so this is the context that we, we learn. And then last week, as, he, as he's running, right, he's, he's not, the airlines hadn't come on the scene yet. And so, so he gets on a boat, right? He gets on a boat and he's starting to make his way on a boat and this incredible storm comes about, okay? And, and this is the scene we find ourselves in today in the, latter part of chapter one. And so let me, uh, let me pray and we'll read this good word. Father, open our eyes to see your grace, your sovereignty, your kindness, and your goodness in your word. And as we read this word, may this word read us and conform us to be more like you and what you would desire for us to be and propel us to run where you would want us to run, not from you, but to you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Notice in verse 7, this is God's holy great word. He says, and they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you've done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. And then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know 
it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. And therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. And so they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord, and they made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Listen, this is God's incredible, awesome word. And so you know As we read this, you can run, but you can't hide. Jonah had begun this downward spiral that kept going down. And sin does this, right? It always takes you further than you want to go. It keeps you longer than you want to stay. And it costs you more than you're willing to pay. God, yet in his great grace and his great sovereignty, right? He he takes our running from him and he can redeem it. And he can restore that which is lost. I remember specifically years ago, my freshman year in college, as I uh, went off to a small school about an hour and a half from my house. Uh, I remember that first particular Sunday that I had set the alarm clock to get up and go to church as my parents had instructed me uh, to do, that I hit the alarm clock for about 17 different times. (laughs) And I remember I was like, you know, um, I've done that season for a while I think um, maybe this Sunday, I'll just take some time to be on my own and, and not necessarily do this. And the next Sunday, I hit the alarm clock about 17 times, right? And it began a, a downward spiral where, where life began to get crazy and chaotic for me for the next four to five years. I remember specifically that freshman semester that a fraternity on campus there was, uh, was pursuing me to be a part of their fraternity. And, and I was thinking through this and I actually had the thought, well, maybe I could be like a missionary and go into the fraternity, right? And unfortunately they have missionaries as well in a different context. Uh, and and they, they were coming after to me. And I just remember specifically as I began to pledge this fraternity that uh, there were certain things that they did were in our culture and context would called haze. They would haze and, uh, to try to man you up and so forth on certain things. And one in particular thing, uh, don't try this at home at all, please. But one particular thing they would, um, we, we, so, so attorneys, it's Greek letters, it's a Greek life, right? And so you had to learn the Greek alphabet uh, rather, rather fast, so fast that you had to light a match and turn it upside down and be able to say it, right, before it burned your hand, right? And so I learned the Greek alphabet to say it really, alphabet again, I mean, I just went through it really, really fast, right? Well, little did I know, in God's kind sovereignty, right? That um, as God gripped my heart, changed my heart, moved me to a place to enter into seminary at Southeastern Seminary, my first semester in 1996, my first class that I signed up for was Greek, right? (laughs) And it was Greek because the New Testament was written in Greek. I later took Hebrew, which the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, except a few parts was Aramaic. But in this first week of my seminary class, my first... Test in seminary was the Greek alphabet. <laughs> yes, right. I, I got a hundred on that thing, right? 
I got 100 on that first test. And I just smiled, sat back. And it's just like, you know, God's kindness, even as I ran from him and his sovereignty, used that, right? I mean, I didn't even get, I don't think I ever made an A in English on anything, right? I mean, you know, that's the kindness of God working through that where I would finish with an A in Greek. Who in the world would have even thunk that, right? I mean, my goodness. And so, so think about this, right? In God's sovereignty, he, he works despite our disobedience, our running in rebellion. And, and he, he even allowed, as I came here to Providence, to, to run in the college ministry for some 15 years and invest in many students where I didn't invest in students when I was in college. And yet, he, he understand this, right? He, we don't seek disobedience in order to highlight God's sovereignty, right? His preferred path would, would be to run in obedience. And yet, in our running from him, he still sovereignly works. And so, this morning, here's what I want to do. I want to show three truths, three truths about our sovereign God in the storms of life. Okay, this is where we're going to go. So the first one is this, is that God is sovereign over the storms. God is sovereign over the storms. Notice in verse seven, they cast lots to see who had brought this trouble upon them. And it wasn't the luck of the role. It was the Lord of the role, the sovereign hand of God, allowing it to point to the prophet. And this prophet Jonah, right? He's not simply, he's not simply um, rebelling. No, no, his racism and his pride is so deep. He doesn't want this word to get to a wicked city because he knows that they will, God has the power to save them, right? He doesn't necessarily just run. He, he's resigning in a sense from his role of, as prophet to, 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 to run from him. And then we, we see in verse, verse eight, the, the, the sailors, they're, they're saying, look, who, who in the world are you? What have you done? And, and the, the sailors thinking this, this is what they're thinking. They're thinking that the wrath of God is coming upon them. But watch what happens. See, the storm is not necessarily the wrath, but rather God's grace in reaching the sailors and Jonah. One theologian says it like this of Romans 1.18, that God's wrath is not his crushing us. No, his wrath is his slow removal of his presence. See, Jonah was, was running, but he could not hide in God's grace and love extended much further than this brother could, could go and much faster than this brother could go. See, God's sovereign grace is in the storm to both reach the sailors and remind the prophet. This is what's, what's happening. And some of you are going through a, through a storm right now. Right? Some of you are, are, are in the midst of a storm. Maybe it's from marriage to parenting to your job uh, to some situation. Maybe it's physical uh, health. And maybe some of you aren't even running from God and you're in the midst of a storm. Or some of you are here physically, but your heart is, is running from him. Listen, storms can be used by God as signs of grace. And in his, his grace, right, he could capture our affection. Storms that blow harder make you lean in deeper. There's a particular house that went through a, a massive storm, right, in 2008 when Hurricane Ike hit one of the third costliest hurricanes that's ever hit. And this particular house was built by a, a husband and wife um, that had unfortunately gone through another storm. Right? They went through another storm in 2005 and Hurricane Rita hit and it, they lost everything. 
And so by going through that storm, right, God used that storm to, to rethink some things and, and regroup and actually build a firmer foundation because they knew probably another storm would come, right? And so they have uh, architects build this particular house in 08 to withstand a Category 5 hurricane. And, and as I hit, the next picture I'll show you is, is the land where, where they were. And so as CNN did this report on this, they, they learned that, that they had um, didn't just by the luck of the draw build a, a sturdy home, that they had been through a storm already. And they knew because of that storm that they had to prepare maybe for future storms. And so they used uh, engineering skills to actually build this house to withstand a category five. And so I ask, you know, if you've been through a storm, did God remind you of his promises, of his principles to rebuild, maybe to come back to the foundation that will hold through anything? Listen, Charles Spurgeon, the the pastor from England in the 20th century, 19th, 20th century, says this about these storms. Listen to this. He says, all events are under the control of the providence of God. Right, not this providence, God's providence, his benevolent good. All providences are doors to trial. Even our mercies, like roses, have their thorns. Men may be drowned in seas of prosperity as well as in rivers of affliction. Our mountains are not too high and our valleys are not too low for temptations. Trials lurk on all roads. The trials which come from God are sent to prove and strengthen our graces. You are a tree that never would have been rooted so well if the wind had not rocked you to and fro and made you take firm hold upon the precious truths of the covenant grace. Worldly ease, listen, worldly ease is a great foe to faith. It loosens the joints of holy boldness and snaps the muscles of sacred courage. The balloon never rises until the cords are cut. Affliction brings this sharp service for believing souls. While the wheat sleeps comfortably in the husk, it is useless to man. It must be threshed out of its resting place before its value can be made known. And one author says it like this, in Jonah we learn because of God's sovereignty, God's capacity to clean things up is infinitely greater than our human capacity to mess things up. That's good news, isn't it? That is such good news, Providence. Listen, Romans 8, 28 says it like this. And we know that in all things, not some things, but in all things, all storms, right? God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. In Genesis 50, Genesis 50, verse 20, this is a, is a text that you need to put into your theological foundation, right? Because it's a text that informs us how God uses these bad things that happen. Right, These bad things that happened for, for Joseph, you may know that story where he's sold into slavery by his brothers. He's done wrong. He's then sold again, and then he's accused wrongly. He's in prison for some two years in prison. Then God moves him from that place. All of this is taking place, Genesis 
40 to, to 50. And you end up hearing this sort of s- summary for Joseph as his brothers come back. They don't recognize him. He recognizes them. And he is going to provide them with food because their land is in a, in a midst of this, this famine and, and, and there's no food. And so he ends up saying, and this is this is an incredible theological concept, that what you meant for evil against me, God meant it for good. And so as a people, listen, let's trust his sovereign heart. Let's trust his sovereign heart when we can't see his strong hand. Let's trust in this sovereign heart. If you're not a believer here this morning, we want to encourage you to consider maybe trusting him for the first time. Maybe you're in a, a storm of, of, of fear of, of what it, what's going to happen maybe for all of eternity. You don't have a relationship with him. We want to encourage you to trust him and place your faith in him. Or if you're a believer this morning um, and, and you're going through it or you will go through it, it's inevitable at some point, at some time, we all have, have faced or will face or are facing some type of storm, right? Lean into him. Don't run from him. Notice the second truth. God is sovereignly saving people out of the storm, right? So he's sovereign over the storm, but he's also working in the midst of the storm. He's sovereignly saving people out of the storm. I mean, Jonah, right? He's religious, but he's not right with God. He rolls off his resume that indicates his pride. And listen, I mean, look at what it says in, in verse nine, because they come to him, right? And, and they're, they're asking these questions. Of what's going on? Because he's been asleep down in the bottom while the sailors are scrambling. And, he, and they say, you know, who are you? What's going on? In verse nine, he rolls off the resume. Look at the resume. He says, I'm a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and dry land. So he has a doctrine of creation. He's got a foundation theologically of what's going on, right? And, and yet he's given lip service to to it, right? In, in that his theology is good, his theology is good, but his feet are headed towards Spain. And we could do a survey, right? We could pass out the handouts now and have some questions with multiple choice. Is God the creator of the earth? Majority probably would lean in that direction, right? And this is what's scary. You can get it all right in both lip service and on a test, but it's where your feet walk that determines what you believe, and so, so he says it with his lips. He's, this is an incredible theological concept, yet his feet are headed toward Spain. And then notice, notice what happens in, in verse, verse 10. Then the, the men were exceedingly afraid and, and said to, to him, what is this that you've done? Not this particular sin of, uh, this is just uh, in the sense of uh, the storms raging, the boats rocking, Right? For they knew that he was fleeing from the presence. Maybe he told them when he checked in, when he had his ticket to get on the boat, uh, he had told them this. And then he's so full of himself that he didn't fear God, but these folks are, these sailors are fearing the situation that they're in. And then notice verse 11. Verse 11 brings out a lot for us this morning. It says, then they said, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us. So they've identified the problem, right? And, and what verse 11 tells us is, is that everybody, everybody wants to escape the storm. No one wants to go through the storm. And they're asking this, that what, what, do we, what do we do? It's a great question, but it also is a, is, is a mirror into our own heart that and nobody wants to go through the storm. No one will hardly, uh, no one's looking forward to the, to the funeral. Why right? we look forward to the wedding day, but not the funeral day. And they're, they're, they're thinking they're, that they're, 
Their funeral day is closer because this boat's going down if something doesn't happen. And then verse 12 comes and it's somewhat of his selfishness, right? Because he doesn't want to take his life, but he wants them to actually do it for him. And so verse 12, he gives them the answer. He gives them the remedy. He says, pick me up and hurl me into the sea and then the sea will quiet down for you. Because I know this is, I'm the one that this is, this is happening. So he gives a reasonable answer. He gives the, the answer to them. And then here's what's fascinating in verse 13. Notice verse 13, the word nevertheless. Nevertheless, meaning, meaning okay, we appreciate the remedy. We appreciate the answer. But here's what we're going to do. We're going to go in default mode, which we all do at some point, sometime. Right? He says, the men rode hard to get back to the dry land. What is this doing? This is exposing all of us in one sense that, that we're, we lean into self-righteousness, right? We lean into what we can do for God rather than what God's done for us. And this is our first, when, when we think we find ourselves in the storm, right? We want to identify why the storm is there. And then even when the answer is given, there's a propensity for us to then move from him instead of toward him. And they rode hard trying to get back to dry land, but they could not. And if you're rowing this morning as hard as you can and good works, it's not going to happen. And this is how a lot of people, I have multiple conversations with people. I love having these conversations just to observe where people are and how they think through. I'm walking with a friend even now who, who's trying to, he, this is the word, I love this word, I love the honesty. He's like, I'm just trying to find a, a lens through which I can look to make sense of all of life, Right? And, 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 so, and so what a lot of us do is we approach, maybe if there is even a God, right? We come as in, with, with, with the scales of righteousness and unrighteousness, right? And so we do some, right? Most of the time when I ask folks these type of questions, right? They'll go right to what they, what they haven't done. And then they'll, they'll clothe that in a few things that they have done that hopes that maybe the man upstairs or whoever he is will, will accept this. Right? And this is in the heart of all of us. And so, so the unrighteousness and the righteousness at the end of the day, at the end of our life, we're hoping, a lot, of, a lot of our people in our culture are hoping, maybe some of you in this room are hoping that the righteous things that you've done will, will outweigh the unrighteous, right? And I just, I, wanna, I love you too much to let you continue to believe that and say, because the scriptures are clear that your most righteous deed is not good enough. The greatest deed that you've ever done in your entire life is not good enough to get into the presence of a holy God. That's why a holy God had to come to us and do a deed that you and I couldn't do, right? And then it's his righteousness that's given to us as we trust in Jesus and we're made right with God. This is the beauty of, of the gospel. And so, so look what happens. Therefore, right, when they realized that that didn't work, when they, when they got to the end of themselves, in a sense, notice, notice what happens in verse 14. Therefore, so in light of rowing hard, in light of trying to do it myself, therefore, they called out to the Lord. Oh, Lord, right? You get to the end of your rope, you're calling out to somebody. And I'm gonna suggest to you, I think it should be the Lord. Oh, Lord, let us not perish. So death is, death is there. They're, they're, before. they're not at a wedding, right? They're at a funeral. And, and they're contemplating life. All of life is flashing before them. All of their deeds are flashing before them. They're getting ready to enter into eternity. And they're thinking through these things. And they say, Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. They have a doctrine of the sovereignty of God. 
even in this state, right? You've got, you've, got, you've got the sailors, right? This storm is not God's wrath. It's his grace to bring the sailors to himself, right? This, this storm, it's, it's fascinating that, that, it's, that the sailors are repenting in a sense and the prophet of God's running. It's amazing. The, the, the prophet's going, in a few minutes, we're going to see he's going to sink and the sailors are probably going to start singing. And so they picked him up, verse 15. Look, they hurled him into the sea. The sea ceased its raging. I love, I love this, this picture of, of obedience oftentimes brings an instant response. Not always, but sometimes. And then the men fear. Look at what happens. Look at this language Jonah lays out in verse 16. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly. Right? We've seen this word before in verse 10. Then the men were exceedingly afraid. Right? They were, they were, there was a fear factor now, but now that fear factor is rightly directed. And notice what, what happens. They say, the men feared the Lord exceedingly. Like this is a healthy, watch this. This isn't a fear like a horror fear, I'm scared. This is a holy reverent, all fear of them wanting to run to this God, not from this God. This is what's, what's taking place in the midst of his, of his hearts, the sailors' hearts. You, you've got the prophet running. You've got the sailors repenting. And God is using the storm as grace to do great, great works, right? There's another man in the New Testament named Judas who was used of Satan to betray the Son of God. And little did he know that when he tried to thwart the purposes of God, he was actually fulfilling them, right? In the giving of the son, Jesus himself, to the soldiers, the soldiers putting him to death on a cross. Thank you. No, God's sovereignly saving people. He ultimately offers salvation through that storm of betraying the son of God. You see it in the Old Testament, God saving. You see this deep, deep theological position that these three young men, have you, you've heard of them, right? Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. In Daniel chapter three, you have this incredible story where these guys are trusting in God in the midst of the storm. You have these three guys that have come and they're, they're in, the, in the governor, in the, in the king's um, order. They're working and serving. And King Nebuchadnezzar, he, he builds this massive gold type of, of, of um, statue. And, and then he says, he sets it up at the blow of the horns and the, all these different things are gonna happen. Then everyone's gonna bow down and do and you imagine this large, I mean, thousands, probably upon thousands, these people are bowing down to this particular false god. And in the midst, you've got three people still standing uh, out in the back, out in the middle. And, and they're like, what's going on? Who are those? And they pull them to the side and then they bring them before the king. And then the king, he says, he says, he, he said, no, we're going to do it again. We're going to blow it. We're going to give you a second chance, right? And as you, we do the second chance, then, then you just get ready and go down. Right, and they go, and this is this is their response, right? Because the, the, the king was furious with this rage, and and, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. This is what they say to the king. These are three young men standing in the storm, but holding truth to God and who He is, being able to sovereignly save. He says, "We do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is now. Watch what it says. Is able." to save us. Does it say the God we serve will save us? It says the God that we serve is able to save us from it and he will deliver us 
from your hand. But, verse 18, even if he does not, we want you to know something, king, that we're not going to serve your gods or worship you. Trust, deep trust in the sovereign God. See, look, you're not going to need a life jacket unless you start to drown. And storms are grace in your life for God to save you ultimately. Smooth sailing, listen, when you have smooth sailing and the water's like glass, you really don't think you need anything. You just go with the wind, right? And a lot of times that wind's taking you from God. And the storms are showing grace, right? Hebrews 7 says it like this, because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood, therefore he is able to save completely those who draw near to God through him. It's by faith and trust in the finished work of Christ that you have a right relationship. You have the righteousness needed to be made not only right, justified with God, but then to be able to have an entrance into heaven for eternity. And so let's trust. There's way of application. Let's trust Jesus to save us from our sin and help us to have hope this morning. Oh, listen, God's sovereign, right? He's over the storms. He saves people from the storms. But watch this. Now watch this. God's sovereignty shouts of his mercy and grace in the darkest of storms. In the darkest of storms. What a text. No, let's just, let's unpack it. Ready? Verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish. Now you guys, some some in our culture, they don't like this text, right? They're like, you telling me, that God talks to the fish, right? And I'm saying, yes, because he made them, right? And I think he can move in them and ordain them to do what he wants them to do, right? And I saw this in a very tangible way, right? Because we believe Jonah was a real man. Jesus believed he was a real man. We believe this is a real fish. We believe the sovereignty of God is moving through the ocean, right, to move through this fish. And so about 20 years ago this August, right, my wife and I were married, celebrating our 20th anniversary. And on our honeymoon, we went up north, right? We got married at the end of August. And so instead of going south with some sun, we went north where it was a little chill. And so we went up to Nova Scotia. And as we're up in Nova Scotia, we ended up taking, um, we, we we, we had a little white, minivan, which by the way, minivans are awesome, just for the record, okay? Uh, a minivan, and it had a blue stripe down it, and we named the minivan The Whale, okay, as we drove around Nova Scotia. And then we signed up to go whale watching um, at the Bay of Funday, okay? It's this incredible bay. They have amazing scallops, but the, and the tide is really high, really low. The boats are on the ground, and they're up. But in this bay, at certain times, whale watching is some of its, its best, and so on this particular day, my wife and I signed up. And um, as we signed up, as, uh, before we got there, we held hands. I remember it specifically. We held hands and we were crying out to God. We said, all right, God, we, you've given us a, a white well as a minivan. This is awesome, right? Um, could you, would you, we know you don't have to, but would you in your sovereign power move in the wells to let us have an amazing show? <laughs> This is a wedding gift, maybe, right, right? I know this is a crazy prayer, right? But I'm holding hands, man, married. She said, yes, I'm still shocked. She said, yes, right? And, and we're, we're, we're gonna say, Lord, would you, in your kindness, we, we believe your son, we believe you made every creature of the sea. Would you? We left it at that, right? We get on a boat, and on this particular boat, there's a short captain from Ireland, had a 
great accent. And, uh, and he's like, Mike! He looks at us, it's me and Jules and one other couple. That's it on the boat, right? And uh, he goes, well, we haven't seen a whale in 30 days. <laughs> and I'm like, well, you could have told us that before we paid. <laughs> Honeymoon, <laughs> it's a little tight. <laughs> and then we begin to, to head out. And as we begin to head out, Jules and I are holding our hands. Will he whisper? Will he whisper to the whales? I believe he can. He may not. Will he whisper to the whales today? As we got out, this, this is what came out of the water next to the boat. Not only did he come out of the boat, he brought some friends with him. <laughs> And he brought some friends with him. And this particular fin, as you see, this particular fin, he gets, he gets on his side. Maybe he needed to get some sun. I don't know. He just sat there. And instead of rolling, he took his, his fin and slapped the water and waved at us for like 30 seconds. Right? And then the, the whale part of it, I've, I've only seen the tail of the whale. They usually just roll, right? Well, this particular well, he rolled and then he stopped. And I'm like, how does he do that? Does he have breaks in the water? Breaks in the water don't work, right? And, and so he stops with the tail out of the water and turns directly toward us in the boat and moves his tail as, as if he's fanning us and waving at us, right? And so do I believe God appointed a whale to swallow Jonah? 100%. I do. He's the sovereign one. Right? And yet, in this moment, right, one of these brightest moments for my wife and I, in this text, this is one of the darkest moments ever for Jonah. I mean, let's go there for just a minute, right? This is, this, he doesn't go in, there's not electricity in the stomach of the great fish, right? I mean, it's dark. It's, it's, it smells. It probably stinks, right, in there. And he's, he's in this massive fish there where we're going to see next week, right? And that dark moment is when he turns to God. The dark moment had come for the sailors, right? This dark moment for the prophet has come. And in this dark moment, we're going to see next week a, an amazing prayer of repentance for his running. And so don't discount, listen, listen. Don't discount the dark storms of your life. You're you're not going to cry out for the life jacket unless you know the waves crashing. And in the darkness, Jonah depends on God. And what this dark day in the book of Jonah ultimately does is it points us to another dark day. Another dark day that I would suggest was the darkest of all days and Jesus even says himself of this story, of this story in Matthew chapter 12, this is what Jesus says. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the son of man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now Jesus is saying something greater than Jonah is here. These are the words of Christ, right? What is greater than this moment? What is this picture of of three days in the belly of a fish? It's pointing 
to three days where the son of God, right, went into the depth of the earth, death himself. This, this dark day points to the darkest of days. And this dark day was so dark that it even turned dark, the scriptures say, when the son of God was on a cross on a hill called Calvary. When, when Christ was crucified, when Christ was crucified for our sins and took the wrath of God upon himself. That's the darkest of days. I don't want in any way to diminish the dark days that you've had, but I want to suggest to you, you've never had a dark day like that day. That day, that day that Christ was crucified is the darkest of days, and yet it brings the greatest light, right? The sovereignty of God working, in that dark day, what looks like the killing of the son of God, the seed that was promised from Genesis three fifteen, is being crushed. And it looks like it's over and it's in his crushing that you and I have access to life. The darkest of days, the darkest of days was that day. Not when he went into the belly of a fish, but when the son of man went into a grave and he died for our sins. And then he rose victoriously on the third day. This is why I love the lyrics in this song. This is what it says. It says, but as I ran my hell bound race, indifferent to the cost, you looked upon my helpless state and led me to the cross. And I beheld God's love displayed. You suffered in my place. You bore the wrath reserved for me. Now, all I know is grace. Listen, this morning, promise, listen. Let all your dark days of strong storms point you to the sovereign Savior who endured the darkest of days, right? Let those dark days serve as grace and storms to point you to the one that's died for you. And then let's go to the nations that live in darkness and share the light of the gospel. Listen, listen, providence, providence. Listen, as we close, let's not be like the prophet of God who ran. Let's be the people of God who run. And let's run across the street and let's run to our city and let's run to the nations. Let's run to the 1040 window, the 1040 window that goes across Northern Africa and into the Middle East and into China and Asia and India, where 2 billion people have never heard the name of Christ. I got a text this morning early of a dear brother that lives in the 1040 window in the Middle East. This morning, right? Now we're ahead. So this happened before us, right? Sun comes east, sets west. This morning, right? Two, two were baptized in a pool in the 1040 window, right? Because somebody ran where God told him to run, right? And whenever he tells you to run, listen, he's gonna work because he's the sovereign God of the universe. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Thank you for your grace today. Thanks for the opportunity to be together in this room and worshiping and, and singing and listening to the word, reading the word aloud and letting your spirit move and have his way with us. God, I pray that you would take this word and it would, it would feed us. It would feed us for this week, God.
that you would, you would remind us of the storm we just come out of, the storm we're getting ready to go into, the storm we're in, that there's one who endured a greater storm on our behalf. And so lift our heads, God, when it gets really dark. God, lift our heads, lift our hearts, so we could see the greatness of your grace moving in us and through us. And God, we know our city, our nation, and our world. There's a lot of storms everywhere. And so God, help us to be quick. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. And God, may we run in the direction you'd have us to run to take this good news to as many people as possible and to usher the return of the King. And so we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.